You are tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I am truly grateful for each of you for tuning in today. And support for this podcast comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, bringing the Jackson Hole community residential and commercial food waste composting options. Call 307-733-7678 for more information. The Jackson Hole Wine Club, making the experience of exploring new wines as easy as taking a sip. Visit jacksonholewineclub.com to sign up today. Everyone, I really enjoy reading and learning from others, which guides me to share quotes with you today. Today's quote is, by choosing healthy over skinny, you are choosing self-love over self-judgment. And that comes from Steve Mariboli, folks. Remember, what you see on social media, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, that's not real life out there. Be real, be true to yourself, follow with what's in your heart. And, you know, to get to a certain level, there's always a sacrifice. You have to give something up to gain something. It can be a lot of pain and sacrifice to get to certain places. So if you're willing to endure the pain and to make sacrifices, the reward is well worth it. And today on episode number 199, I have the pleasure and honor of interviewing Joe Stone. And Joe is the director of mission with an organization here in Jackson Hole, Wyoming called Teton Adaptive. A lot of people in town know it as Teton Adaptive Sports, but they are rebranding themselves as Teton Adaptive. During this interview, I learned so much about people. I learned about myself while speaking with Joe. And I feel the best way for you to learn from Joe is really for you to listen to him yourself. You're going to thoroughly enjoy this interview. While speaking with Joe, I was challenged. I did this to myself. I was challenged to think about how I view myself, how I view others, how I approach people. And I know I have a responsibility to improve and change the words that I use. And, and I hope you take some of that away as well from today's conversation. I promise you, after you listen to Joe Stone speak, you will ask yourself, how can you change? And how can you overcome your fears? And also, how can you help society do the right thing so everyone has opportunity? Joe, thank you for joining me here today on the Jackson Hole Connection podcast. It's wonderful to meet you and be able to uh, have a conversation with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. You're, you're welcome. Joe, I do love starting off by learning more about you and a little bit of your background. So I'm curious to learn where were you born and raised and uh, how, how long have you lived out here in Jackson and how did you land here? Yeah, so born in North Carolina, Goldsboro, North Carolina. Grew up a little bit there, but the majority of my upbringing came uh, from Minnesota. So my parents had moved just south of Minneapolis when I was about 11 years old. And we had moved around quite a bit before then. And they finally said, you know what, this is a really great spot. I think we need to just post up and let our kids 
stay at one place for the long haul for the rest of our, at least like growing up, the rest of school and all that. So grew up in Minnesota, really outdoorsy family, camping, hiking, hunting, fishing, that sort of thing. And just really into sports. Rollerblading was my big one, like going down handrails, doing tricks, that kind of thing. We're talking late nineties, early two thousands when that was a lot bigger than it is now. Still exists, still going strong, but it's nice. not as popular as popular as it used to be. And uh but that was a huge hobby or passion of mine that I chased until probably chased it pretty hard until I was about twenty two. And then that, like twenty you know, age twenty to twenty two was starting to explore more of getting deeper into the woods and further away from the concrete, which, you know, as you can imagine, rollerblading is at its finest on concrete. And so <laughs> kind of exploring that side of things, realizing that I wanted to find something new to chase because rollerblading comes, the style of rollerblading I did comes with a lot of injuries. And with those injuries, it was just starting to kind of wear on me and also recognize that, you know, I'm, I'm 22 and not really probably going to be able to hit the, the pro level that I had always been chasing. And so it was time to kind of not totally leave rollerblading, but move on to something new. And so I got into skydiving, the goal of getting into base jumping. And like I said, was spending more time getting into the woods and backcountry camping and that sort of thing. Long story short, that led me to Montana, where I moved to Missoula, Montana. And that's really where I started. That's where like adulthood really kind of kicked in for me in terms of, you know, doing something big on my own, starting over somewhere else where I didn't really know anybody. I moved there with no job, no place to live, no real idea of what I was going to get into once I moved up to Montana and just started exploring. And that was a, a really good growth moment in my life. So, about, so now we're talking about 2008, 2009, and I... In that process of living in Montana, once I got settled, I ended up getting into a sport called speed flying. So speed, speed flying. It's speed flying? Yeah, speed flying. So speed flying is a lot like paragliding for those who have seen it off of Jacksonville Mountain Resort or other mountains in the area. Just a really small wing where you go a lot faster. It's kind of like the downhill mountain biking of the paragliding world. And I ended up, you know, shortly after getting into that, made some mistakes while trying to progress and maybe trying to progress a little too quickly and doing some maneuvers in the air that ended up collapsing part of my wing and created some line twists. And that sent me firing, spiraling down and cracked into the side of the mountain pretty hard. So that started a whole new journey for me, which was living life with a spinal cord injury and diagnosed as an incomplete C7 quadriplegic and trying to refigure out how to live, how to take care of myself. But then more importantly, how do I get a smile back on my face? Mm. It, it's so the one thing that I always knew to be very consistent in my life was the outdoors and chasing outdoor adventure and setting goals within that and trying to progress. And that, that is what I knew. And that's also what I knew to be how I kind of gauge progression in my life. And so once I was able to get myself up and dressed and ready for the day, which took about seven months. I kind of quickly jumped back into trying to rediscover life in the outdoors. And through that process, I figured a lot out for myself. I did things like hand cycling to going to the Sun Road up in Glacier National Park, which is a pretty hefty goal for me. That was one day before the one-year anniversary of my accident. And it led to that opening my mind to a whole lot of other I tried whitewater rafting, and I 
got into mountain biking and I got into all these other activities. And as I was relearning all of these things that I used to do as an able-bodied person, but now as a person with a disability, I started recognizing that, you know, I'm figuring it out for myself and I'm stubborn enough to do so, but there's a lot of people out there that keep asking me questions like, how am I doing these things? How am I camping? How am I traveling? How am I finding funding for the equipment? Because it's really expensive for people with disabilities. And that opened my mind to wanting to really do something to help the disability community so that I could, you know, hopefully open up more doors. And in that process was learning that, you know, people with disabilities aren't really included in community activities, community events, regular organizations in town that are supporting the community. It's always people with disabilities off somewhere else doing something somewhere else, at least in the outdoors. And so that kind of led me on what's now my life's mission on supporting people with disabilities through outdoor recreation and trying to bridge the gap between people with and without disabilities through outdoor recreation. And to, to wrap the whole thing up, I, in that process, was working with uh, a mountain bike festival called the White Ramadu, which is held at Grand Targi every Labor Day weekend. That started in 2013. I just showed up. I, I was invited there to, to show up and test out the trails for adapted mountain biking. Showed up, had some support from a couple of people that were working at Teton Adaptive at the time. And that started the friendship with Teton Adaptive. Year after year, we kept partnering on the same event, inviting more people. It actually turned into the largest gathering of adapted mountain bikers that we're aware of, at least at the time. And so about 30 people or so show up a year, each year with a disability, athletes with disabilities. And we partner with a bunch of other organizations to bring all the gear and make sure everybody has access to the trails and the equipment. And uh, some are showing up as the pros and some are showing up as never evers. And we kind of have a really sweet party over Labor Day weekend amongst this whole other festival that's got 600 people there without disabilities, or at least without as visible disabilities. And so... That really started this partnership between myself and Teton Adaptive, which led down this years of, um, you know, it's kind of funny. My, my boss would often ask me to, you know, move to Jackson and, and, and just start officially working at Teton Adaptive. But I would be, she'd like call me in the winter and I'd be in California paragliding or something and be like, cool, I don't need six foot snow drifts outside of my house. I'm, I'm doing all right in 80 degrees in Southern California right now. Um, like my girlfriend ended up getting a PT job here. I helped her move here and the conversation just kept continuing. And now we're two years into me or almost two years into me working full-time with Teton Adaptive. So that's about as quick as I can tell the the story of how I ended up here from, from birth to, to now. And uh, I'm sure you might have a question or two in there. Um, a few questions. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for being such an open book and sharing your history and experience from going to I think you called it a full able-bodied person or an able-bodied person yeah to a person with a disability yep okay um yeah. did I get that correct yeah I mean able-bodied just means you you know you, you don't have any disabilities okay um and uh, you know then there's you know somebody with a disability so um I, I'm now a person living with a disability and that was not the case before I, you know, became pretty good friends with the mountain that day and ended up wrecking my body a little bit. Yeah. When you, I'm very curious to know when you woke up from being, did you wake up from the hospital and somebody saying, Hey, this is what happened to you? Yeah. So that was a pretty wild experience. I, 
I collapsed into the mountain. And just to give you an example of how bad it was, I had a laceration in my liver. I had badly bruised both of my lungs. And that was probably the most life-threatening part of everything in the, the very immediate moment. I had four broken ribs. I had eight broken vertebrae throughout my neck and back. I had a first fracture, first fracture in my C7 vertebrae. So that, that vertebrae just completely exploded, which created spinal cord damage at the C7 level. So I'm diagnosed as an incomplete C7 quadriplegic, meaning I have impairment in all four limbs. So the big misconception with quadriplegia is that you're paralyzed from the neck down. Um, so walking quads all the way to being paralyzed from the neck down, it's just impairment in all four limbs. So I do have full function in my arms with my hands or what are affected. So I, I don't have any grip in my left hand. I can open it a little bit, but I can't close this hand at all. And I got very lucky and recovered quite a bit of function in my right hand. So in the incomplete part means that I have some signals that are still getting through my spinal cord. And so I have sensation everywhere. There's nowhere on my body that's completely numb, but it does feel like half numb. There's almost like a vibration or a hum below my injury line. So basically from the nipple down, there's like this tingly feeling in my body all the time, which now I'm very used to, but as you can imagine, it was part was, was really hard to kind of adjust to in the beginning. So it was such a life threatening situation that I was in. My heart stopped twice in the hospital. I was put into an induced coma that was supposed to be for a couple of days. That ended up being almost a full month in an induced coma. So when I woke up from that, you know, some of my earliest memories, like I remember one of my speed flying buddies, actually he was a ER nurse, showed up and comes into my room. It's super early in the morning. And I, if I remember correctly, I think he was, you know, showed up a little bit before he started his shift to work at the same hospital that day. And, you know, I just asked him, like, you know, I remember I was on a ventilator. I could talk a little bit, but it was, like, really weak and almost nothing. And and I remember, you know, at, in some way signaling to him, like, to tell me what happened. And he told me that I had crashed speed flying. And I just remember being so devastated because when I when I kind of left the, the, the idea of chasing being a pro as a, as a rollerblader, I was letting go of a, a massive passion and goal that I had in my life that I'd been chasing for, you know, 10 or 12 years or something like that. So a big part of my life and letting go of that sent me into this unknown of, can I ever have that feeling again? Can I ever, you know, have passion for something again? Can I ever be that driven for something like I was with rolling? Like wake up every day and that's all I want to do. And that's all I think about. And how can I get better? And nobody's motivating me to do it. It's, I just had it in me. And, I, and so I went on this search, you know, through endurance sports, through backcountry camping, to, you know, trying out a little bit of climbing and trying out a whole bunch of other things, skydiving and with the goal, like I said, getting into base jumping. And when I got into speed flying, I found it. And I didn't even realize that I was going to find it, you know. And all of a sudden, I was just like, my whole life was completely full again. And I was so excited about finding that passion and that drive for life again mm. took a little bit of time to get there but i finally found it after a couple of years of searching and and then it wasn't that long after i learned how to speed fly that if i crashed and then there I was waking up after a month-long coma and being told you know i have a spinal cord injury and i'm most likely going to be using a wheelchair for the rest of my life now i had no idea what life would look like from that point forward so at that point in my life i thought life was over I was going to be living in a nursing home for the rest of my life and I would be 100% dependent on everyone around me. So 
there's not a word that really describes it that I've ever found, but I mean, I was completely devastated and, and thought that I had just threw everything away and my entire life was completely over. And I, you know, had this opportunity where I rediscovered passion for life again, true passion. And I threw it away out of getting too excited and a little too connected to the, the adrenaline and the, the adventurous part of speed flying. I got too consumed by that and wasn't really focusing too much on the risk management end of things. You know, when you're, when you're 24, 25 years old, you know, especially as a guy, like not to throw a gender on it, but I was filled with ego. Nothing was going to kill me. I had it all figured out. I wasn't listening to anybody else. I knew how to, you know, make it happen. And I really looked at it as I'm going to look back and see a video about myself being a, a really good speed flyer, bait jumper kind of guy and go, I can't believe I survived the first few years of it because of all the mistakes I made, but I survived it. And now here I am. Like that's literally like what was going through my mind in the early days of getting into speed flying. So yeah, no fear, no risk management, none of that. So because of that, I quickly realized how clear the decisions were that I made and you know, the, the level of guilt that I was facing while being on a ventilator and not even being able to really mobilize that was, was pretty heavy. Mm. So it was, the, it was, it was the feeling of just completely, you know, being alive, but also mourning my death at the same time. And what helped you, you said earlier, finding the smile back on your face to be able to put that back on your face. That was a pretty interesting transition. So that first year was super interesting to look back on because the beginning of it, yes, I was getting on my computer and I was trying to search for whatever's out there in terms of what people with disabilities and someone in a similar situation to myself is doing in the outdoors. But there wasn't a ton on the internet in 2010 like there is now. So come a long way in the last 12 years. And so I found a few things and I did find a video of a guy paragliding uh, as a wheelchair user and that sort of thing. And I was, that was, it was great to see that stuff, but I, I really, I really did have a moment where I said, once I started seeing some of that and I watched a, a documentary called Motorball, which is about quadriplegic rugby, awesome film. That one really changed my whole perspective on disability. Cause I got to see all these guys on the Paralympic team in those days that were fairly similar level of injuries as myself, happy, setting goals, chasing dreams, traveling, doing all of these things that they were super into. And so I, I kind of started to see, you know, there's, there is more to this than a nursing home and being a hundred percent dependent, but, but I need to dial it back, figure out how to get myself healthy again, figure out how to get myself up and dressed and ready for the day, figure out how to maybe cook a meal, feed myself, that sort of thing before I could really start thinking to you about the outdoors. So I set a goal originally to become independent with my basic needs. So not driving, not going to work, nothing like that. Just literally get up and get dressed and ready for the day. And I wanted to do that within one year. I had a lot of people at the hospital that were telling me that that's a really ambitious goal. It takes most people at my level of injury two to four years to be able to get to that point. Mm. And I remember laying there once in my hospital bed. I was thinking about being told that. And I was like, yeah, two to four years to be able to put pants on and push a man in your wheelchair around and, you know, accomplish the other things that comes with just your basic cares that we all brush our teeth, you know, cook a meal, whatever, take a shower, that kind of thing. I was like, it just seems, you know, given my past 
and how I set goals in my life and how I was okay with failure because in setting goals, you have to be okay with failure as well. I was like, that seems way too long. I'm still going to stick to doing this in one year. And if I don't do it, then at least I know I gave it everything I could to do it in a year. But if I do do it, that's amazing. And, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be that much more ahead of the game. So I worked really hard. I got out of the hospital after four months, did three more months of outpatient therapy. And towards the end of that outpatient therapy, I had actually hit my basic independence. So I was only seven months into my injury. Now, I still needed help for a lot of things, but I could get myself up and dressed and ready for the day. It took seven months, six months of being awake for me to actually get to that point. So that's where I sat back and I said, okay, I got five months until I'm at the one-year mark. I just crushed that other goal, hit it out of the park. So now, can I find a smile? Before I start thinking about driving, before I think about working again and all those other pieces of life, can I find a smile? And did a little research, couldn't find much information on anybody with a disability ever hand cycling to going to the Sun Road up in Glacier National Park. Something I kind of always wanted to do, knew I could do as a person without a disability, but now as a quadriplegic was like, I don't know, can I? Is it even possible? Can I even figure out how to, at this point, I skipped a step of where I'm back in Minneapolis close to family again, So I'm not in Montana anymore. So it was like, can I drive out there? Can I camp? Can I do all those, that part of it? Can I travel? And can I bike this 50 mile road with a mountain pass in the middle that has 2,500 feet of elevation that you have to, you know, you have to climb up and over. So I spent about a month and a half or so trying to find the equipment, found a nonprofit that had it, similar to Cheap on Adaptive, where I could follow a hand cycle throughout the summer and train. By the time I got that and got solutions to keep my hand on the pedal that has no grip, you know, that sort of thing. By the time I got all that figured out, I had three months to train. And I, five days a week, trained as hard as I could. I set up a, a pretty good plan for progression over those three months. Whether that in St. Paul, Minnesota is pretty hilly, no mountain, but plenty of, you know, we have three to 600 foot hills that are pretty steep to climb and cranked it out five days a week and just learned a lot about myself personally, learned a lot about my physical situation, um, learned the fact that I don't sweat anymore. So how do I control that when I'm out on hot days, keep my body cool, learn that I can feel my leg hair is blowing in the wind, you know, and that was pretty cool to be biking and all of a sudden realize my, my, I could feel my leg hair. Um, a lot of really, really neat things that I learned about myself, but also some, some areas where I had to problem solve. Like I said, not being able to sweat. How do I go to the bathroom while I'm on this hand cycle? How do I deal with, how do I change a flat tire if I get one with one and a half hands? And so it was super cool the way that big goal of the going to the sun road made me figure out all these other things. It forced me to figure out all of these other pieces on how I could be as independent as possible on the hand cycle, which trickled right into my everyday life. So to speed it up, I, I, I made it to Montana after figuring out all these pieces and, and actually ended up biking to going to the Sun Road one day before the one-year anniversary of my injury and to be eight and a half hours to climb Logan Pass, got to the top of that. That was the big unknown and was just my mind was just completely opened up to what life can look like with a disability. So, you know, I remember sitting there thinking to myself, okay, so deep flying accident, muck flying induced coma three more months in the hospital, three more months of outpatient therapy after that, got my basic independence back. Then there I was with this open space of creating this new goal, surrounded it by a bunch of filming to create a documentary called It's Raining, So What? Organized all of that and trained and got myself going and made it to the top of Logan Pass in eight and a half hours of climbing. 
And I was like, if I could do all of that in a year, given what I was up against, you know, I think, I think the, the future is pretty bright for me at this point. Like, I feel like I can accomplish a lot. I could do that in the first year. And it ended up taking me about 14 hours, pretty much on the nose, 14 hours to bike the whole road. And yeah, I left that project with just a complete open mind and a new sense of curiosity with life and just started saying yes to everything. So every opportunity I got, whether it was getting on the water, getting on trails, putting tires on dirt for mountain biking, eventually getting back into paragliding and speed flying and a number of other different really cool opportunities, all the way into career shift. Public speaking now became a big part of my life. Um, helping other people with disabilities, starting a foundation at the time that I had started to bridge the gap between people with and without disabilities. You know, it, it just took me into this whole new direction in my life that was totally different than what life was like before my injury, but now had so much more meaning. So finding that smile happened. Mm. And that one moment at the top of Logan Pass just opened up so many doors for me, you know, and now fast forward. 10, 11 years from that. And, you know, I'm pretty stoked on where it's all taken me in the end. Joe, what you accomplished in that first year is astonishing. And from my perspective, it's like, wow, sometimes I complain that my feet hurt when I get up in the morning or they cramp up too much. But um, I have nothing to complain about <laughs> because I, yeah, I'm not a quadriplegic. Um, well, I, you know, my I problem say- is small. I, I, I will say I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the comparison game. We all have our own issues. We all have things that we're Thank faced you. against. And we all have our own whatever that worst is. And that's different for each one of us, right? So my worst might sound worse than your worst, but it's still your worst moment. It's still your hardest moment. So I, it, it, it's more about instead of saying someone else has it worse, so I have no room for complaining, it's, acknowledging that something is hard and challenging for yourself and figuring out a way to move around that. And that's where the strength and overcoming adversity really starts to shine. And that's where you can build on that and build more endurance in the world of overcoming adversity. Mm -hmm. Now you said that you created a documentary along the way. Yeah. What's the name of it, Joe? It's the, so the title of it is it's raining. So what? And so I ended up meeting Kevin May shortly after I did the Going to the Sun Road. And uh, he's a film producer and started chatting with him. Random meeting. We ended up having a great conversation. And he ended up coming over to my house the next day and I showed him the hard drive. Well, we had 65 hours of footage that we'd gathered um, all the way up to the Going to the Sun Road. And so I showed him some little clips here and there of what we had. And he was pretty fired up. And he was like, I'd love to help make this into a real documentary. And that turned into a three-year project of not only taking that first 65 hours of footage in the first year after my injury, but then continuing to film all the way up to November of 2013, where I was the first quadriplegic to ever compete in an Ironman triathlon. Really? So, yeah. So, um, I won't spoil, no spoiler alert. The the film's still out there. You can find it on Vimeo and it's, um, or if you go to the website, it'll, it'll link you to the right places. And I, yeah, I set a goal shortly after the Going to Sun Road. I'd met a, a, a friend of mine who was a paraplegic and he was doing Ironman. And I was like, wow, that, I wonder if the quad's ever done that. And then I did a ton of research and found out no quad had ever even attempted it. So um, I did find one guy who was a walking quad. So he rode a two-wheeled bike and he ran just like everyone else. And he swam just like everyone else. 
So I shouldn't say quadriplegic had never done it, but nobody had ever done it as a wheelchair using quadriplegic, which is a pretty big difference. And so I, yeah, said, oh, I trained for two years and worked really hard and figured out a ton of solutions and ended up in Panama City Beach, Florida. And uh, yeah, went after it then. And that was 2013. So the film follows from a little bit before my life to, you know, injury to that first year after my accident doing the going to the sun road and all the way up to what it took to not only go after an iron man, but a lot, the lessons I was learning throughout that process and how I was, uh, figuring out ways around some of the barriers or the perceived barriers that I was facing. And the big picture for that film, we released it in 2015, did a little bit of film festival kind of stuff with it. But the big picture was to get it in hospitals and do with it like Murderball did for me, which was give people who had newly sustained injuries like myself an opportunity to watch it and hopefully spark some motivation within themselves to look at their new situation and the new life that they're living with the spinal cord injuries or anything, you know, a stroke or brain injury or anything, anything like that to, to take that energy that, that we were trying to provide with the film and, and apply it to their own lives and hopefully not get stuck in a rut and, and keep moving forward. And we ended up in some hospitals that plays on a loop at, at quite a few hospitals in the Midwest and a few other areas. And yeah, that was our whole thing. If we can, we are like, it, you know, we had a, a distribution guy kind of asked us three questions and told us to put in order and it, and it was most important to, to lease. And uh, the three areas were money, further your career, or change the world. And those are the three elements to a film or a documentary. Put them in order because that'll let you know what to do with them from there. And so we put it in order and we said change the world, further our career, money was the least important. And so we approached everything from but with you know, that order of things. And yeah, I look back on it now and I think it was a total success. And Kevin May totally crushed it and knocked it way out of the park on creating that film. And it was just a really neat process to go through that. Not only the filming aspect, but the setting goals and then the amount of work we had to put in in post after it all, which was, I learned a ton about visual storytelling and it was just a growth moment. Those, I mean, I think all of life is a growth moment, but those years in particular were, were really big in me trying to figure out, you know, what my trajectory of life was going to look like and what I was going to be doing career-wise and how to apply what I was learning to what, you know, my passions were. Well, Joe, I, I look forward to getting on the internet and looking for, I've never seen Murder Bowl and, and I've never seen your documentary either. So I certainly look forward to getting on the internet and, and seeing those and, and showing my kids as well that they can uh, do anything they set their mind to and, and put the effort and effort into. Um, I, I do want to hear about what you're doing now with Teton Adaptive and, and how you're making such a big impact in the community here. We have to take a quick break to get a word from one of our sponsors. I've taken so many notes right now. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling is announcing this year's Christmas tree drop-off. And I dropped off my Christmas tree yesterday. Live Christmas trees can be dropped off at the Teton County Fairgrounds, which is where I dropped off my tree, for residents only, or at the trash transfer station at no cost until January 31st. Please, all trees must be delivered undecorated. That means pull that tinsel off, as these trees are going to be composted. So anything that's not natural compromises the composting of the tree. 
thank you for keeping all of those non-compostable materials out of the landfill by removing them from your tree. For more information, visit tetoncountywy.gov slash recycle. Now, I hate to break away, but I got to break away and we're going to be right back. Joe, welcome. Welcome back. You just shared with us um, just a remarkable journey that you've had in your in your life. I th- I think you're probably one of the only people I've ever met who has shared so much of their journey of being a quadriplegic and um, how how that became and now how you stay positive and you're making an impact on the world. You're you're looking to change the world, and and I I feel that you're doing that. And you've been here for about two years in Jackson Hole. You've been coming out here for quite a while now, but you're working at Teton Adaptive. And yeah, tell me, is Teton Adaptive making a local impact or do they have an impact in, in a greater area as well? Uh, so Teton Adaptive is, is focused on Teton County. Okay. So we're supporting a lot of locals, um, but we also live in an area that, as we all know, brings a lot of people in from a lot of different parts of the world. So we're supporting a lot of people, both locally and people who are visiting the area. And our focus on where we create that change and where we create the level of inclusion we're working on is, you know, within Teton County and, the, you know, within this valley so that we can open up more doors in the national park and on the rivers and uh, at Jacksonville Mountain Resort, for example, or getting up in the air paragliding and trying to, so Teton Adapters' mission is to, is to really help already existing businesses be able to also support people with disabilities. So we want a family to be able to travel to or live in Jackson to, that happens to have a person with a disability in the mix to have just as many opportunities as everyone else. So, you know, we, we, we worked with Jackson Old Paragliding last summer to, to kickstart adaptive paragliding events. So now they can take people with disabilities paragliding with a specialized tri-fit Teton Adaptive purchase, thanks to a lot of amazing donors. And so we help get them dialed in with that piece of gear. Whenever people call us looking for things to do, we let them know that's one of the options. Sometimes people buy it on that one and they sign up and they end up going paragliding and and have a really magical experience with all of their friends and family, everyone doing it together. So that level of inclusion, so everyone can recreate together is what we're really after. So our three-part model is with providing equipment, providing training to the organization, and then providing scholarships to those that it's, it's the if the funding aspect of it is the, the barrier to get into the way for entry, then we help out there as well. And and you said businesses. You want to help businesses support people with a disability. And you've mentioned a lot of recreation businesses, but you didn't say that initially. So I'm curious, where does the reach go with Teton Adaptive to help businesses support people with a disability? Can you clarify what you mean by that a little bit? Well, it, I mean, you mentioned Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, Teton Paragliding, getting some mountain biking. Those are all ac- activities for, yeah. you know, you guys helping find the equipment, supplying the equipment for people to get out there, enjoy the river as well, you mentioned. But is Teton Adaptive doing something with um, helping businesses support people with disabilities that are not necessarily in the activity business? So we do a little bit, like we get calls every now and again from like 
on an accessibility standpoint, like if a business is trying to figure out how to make it more accessible for someone to get inside their business or that sort of thing. And, and we can get some advice, but that's not our focus. Our focus is on the outdoors and our focus is on outdoor recreation. So mm-hmm. you'd be surprised how many phone calls we get on that. But there's, there's other groups in town, um, you know, like uh, cultivative ability is another great example of somebody doing similar work, but in a different industry. So cultivatability is working on helping businesses get more comfortable and have what they need to be able to employ people with disabilities. So now we're talking about employment, right? Which is one of those areas that people with disabilities struggle with is finding a job in a place that will hire them to be involved and to recognize them as a productive member of society that, that deserves to have the opportunity to work at their business. So that's what cultivatability is doing. And so we're connected with all the different groups around town that are supporting people with disabilities in one way or another. So sometimes we get called and it's like, you know, I'm not the person for that, but you should chat with so-and-so over cultivatability or a different organization. So we're all kind of sort of working together to try to build more inclusion in the community. Our focus is on the outdoors, outdoor recreation, and and the things that, you know, is a large reason why most of us, I think, live in areas like Jackson is to have access to the mountains, have access to the rivers, have access to the wildlife. And we're trying to open those doors. Then it's a pretty interesting study if you look at, you know, from when the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed, let's just take that for example, in 1990. You know, that, that was the biggest piece of legislation ever signed to give people with disabilities civil rights. And that intent was about integration for people with disabilities. So getting people with disabilities out of nursing homes, out of institutions, into the communities, getting people that weren't necessarily in those situations, but providing them with what they need to have access. So the byproduct of that was curb cutouts, that was electronic openings for doors, that was elevators, that was lifts on buses, that sort of thing, to create opportunities to make it barrier free for people with disabilities to be able to access our community. Right. And so they did a lot with that. They did a lot with physical barriers, a lot with education, a lot with employment, a lot of areas. But the outdoor industry, I feel like is one of the last areas to start really getting dialed in on, on how do we support people with disabilities in the outdoors and how does the ADA apply to that, which it absolutely does, but it hasn't been pressed too much. So we are, what we found is we make the most progression when we follow the good energy. And so instead of taking these federal laws and always shoving that down people's throats, so if someone's saying, you know, I, I think it's too risky to have people with disabilities involved in this, whatever it might be, which we don't run into that. It's pretty rare we run into that. But instead of saying, no, you have to, the law says you have to, it's a federal law. It's kind of like, well, you're not the only one doing that, whatever that might be. So I'm going to go to the next person down the line. And they usually say, happy sweet, we would love to be able to support people with disabilities. So we high five them and we help them out. And so the, the goal in the end is to follow that good energy. And we're seeing how that can grow really quickly when we follow the good energy and just try to share it with love and happiness and not uh, necessarily with like forcing legislation and, and laws and, you know, potential lawsuits and stuff like that down people's throats. Now, all of that's in the background and all that is a thing that could happen. So every business should be aware if you're, if you're not also opening up opportunities for people with disabilities, Technically speaking, you are, you know, breaking a law, which was put into place in 1990, a federal law. But we also recognize as a small business, especially 
it's very hard to get the equipment. It's very hard to have the information. It's very hard to understand it in terms of gathering it, but it's easy to implement. And so that's where we step in and that's why we provide training and that's why we provide the equipment and that's why we provide scholarships to people who can't afford the activity so that we can make it an easy entry for a business to get involved with supporting people with disabilities and we can make it easy for people with disabilities to then feel welcomed and involved in whatever that opportunity is that business provides. Well, well done. Hey. Well done. Well done. There's so much that you have covered here today, Joe. I am, I'm a loss for words right now. Because <laughs> I'm just trying to absorb everything that you shared with me, not just what you've accomplished since your, your accident and becoming a quadriplegic, but just your perspective of how to work with people and your perspective of how you're willing to work hard, take a risk still, a mitigated risk, and accomplish so much. And when, you know, we, we were talking before the show started, and I, and I said that I wanted to make sure that I don't say or ask anything that's out of line or inappropriate. I want to make sure I reference everything properly. And you said, hey, I'm an open book. You can ask me anything and, and I'll tell you basically straight up how it, it's supposed to, you know, what's right, what's, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. And I feel like we can all use so much more just honest conversation and, and one where if somebody asks you a question, don't assume that they have, that they're being mean or, or anything. They could have just messed up. They just might not know. And you just might have to help them along the way. Yeah, you know, I had a really wise person once tell me that the hardest thing for humans to change is our tongue, hmm. whether it be the food we eat or the language we speak. And I just thought that I have always thought that makes so much sense. And it really opened my eyes to, you know, it, it, it's really about taking in the information. But just because you took in the information doesn't mean you're going to be able to completely change habits tomorrow. And that takes time. So let's use uh, language for an example. So, um, you know, I'm not in, in terms of the way the community of people with disabilities want to be in general referred to it's person first language. So a person with a disability, not a disabled person. So if you were to accidentally say, you know, in, in a conversation, you start talking about disabled people, you know, that doesn't mean you just like ruined everything and you're the worst person in the world. Because you didn't say, uh, you know, a person with a disability, it just—it's just, it's just a, a, a moment of like recognizing that you said it maybe the wrong way, and trying to do better next time, right? And so, same thing with it, using other words like handicapped is probably the one that gets thrown out the most to me. That's a pretty outdated way to describe people with disabilities, and it—it's tough for people to to change that language and change, especially when you start breaking it down into ages. So if you're talking to somebody who's in their, you know, seventies and eighties, they grew up when handicapped was, that was the language, right? And so changing that now is harder, right? And so I always think context is extremely important. So if somebody is, uses the word handicapped, not person with a disability, well, you know, are they doing, are they saying that in a mean way or is that just what they know? You know, and if they're not saying it in any kind of hateful way, well, I'm not going to get offended by that. 
you know, maybe sometimes they correct people. Sometimes they don't. It just depends on the, the conversation that I'm having. And um, if I feel that it's even worth it. But yeah, I mean, that we can really get hung up on words. I think the safest bet is to always use person-first language, but um, but also don't get hung up if you make a mistake because we're all human and we do that and we're all guilty of it. And no matter how hard we try, we're going to do it for the rest of our life. Make mistakes? Yeah, we're going to make mistakes. Yeah. There's no way around it. Yeah. Like, I mean... Uh, we're humans. We've all had, we're humans and we've all had one chance to do everything right and I think we've all it up at some point so we're not none of us are getting through this without making mistakes you know that's so true and i like what you said as well earlier is you know people that set goals are used to failure because it, it you're about you're bound to fail at some point but you still got to keep setting goals yeah i mean failure uh, you know during my iron man training that's when i really started noticing like how valuable failure is so it, it just, even on the days, like the days in my training, so I was training when I, when I hit the full on eight months of Ironman training, it was six days a week for eight months. No break, you know, no, no saying no, no, I'm tired today. It was, we're doing, unless there was an injury where I needed to rest, then, then there, it was go time. And I had some days that were just so incredibly hard because my muscles were so tired and I was so fatigued and I just like, I was just really struggling on those days. And I realized those were the days that I was learning the most about myself. And those were also the days where the most progression was being created in my physical strength. And so, and mental strength. And so I, I started noticing these days where maybe I didn't go as fast as I was supposed to that day. You know, maybe I didn't hit the times that I needed because I was just so fatigued. But then I saw like how, because I just went with whatever I could that day, how that built my strength for the, the next day or the day after. And I was even stronger. That, that was how what was building me. And so those moments of, you know, those days I would consider failures. Um, and, and then all of a sudden I'd realize I grew from that day and I learned from that, that day. You know, I could look at my speed flying accident. That was a huge failure. Right. I made serious mistakes that day, hundred percent my fault. And I smashed it in the mountain and became a quadriplegic because of it. And now if I sat on it like that, and that's all I ever thought of, then what's that going to do for me? But what did I learn from that day? Right. So I learned a lot about risk management from that day. And it took some time to process that and to understand it and to really be able to apply what I was learning to my life. But I learned a lot about risk management. I, I learned a lot about really what it means to have a passion for something in life. I learned a lot about how hard it is to work against a lot of adversity, but how great it feels when you, you know, get around that adversity and, and really start progressing in life. And so failures are inevitable. We're going to have them happen. There's nothing we can do about it in every aspect of our life. We're going to have moments of failure. And instead of looking at it as a failure, I'm looking at it more as a, a moment of growth. That's where I started really tapping into welcoming in that failure. Now, I, I don't want to make that sound like I want to fail every day and that every time I fail is, is enjoyable, but it's a moment of growth. And if you analyze it that way and put a study on it like that, then you can take what you've learned and apply it for the rest of your life and, and hopefully not make that same mistake again and continue to grow. Well, well stated at my 
businesses, we have a one-page business plan and on there it has our core values. And one of our core values is it's it's okay to fail. And it and the narrative behind that says we all own it, we all grow from it, and we all benefit from it. Because it. yeah, well it, it it is inevitable. And I think there's part of society that's like, ooh, I can't fail or I'm not gonna talk about it or I'm gonna hide my failure to where when you bring it front and center, then that's when you can really learn from it and be a stronger, wiser person. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And and I also think it's what holds a lot of people back from doing what they really want to do. Mm-hmm. I think being fearful of failure is pretty common. And we've all been there. We all have, we all face that, you know. And being fearful of failure is is a real thing. But should it stop you from living the life you want to live? Should stop you from progression should stop you from new ideas or maybe pushing yourself physically in some way you've never done or going into a business endeavor that maybe you always wanted to but you were afraid to do it because what if you fail it, it definitely shouldn't get in the way and and i think it's worth noting if you know anything worth doing is going to have failure you know so if you're do, if you're doing something big enough you're 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 going to mess up you know and so it's just starting a new business i i don't know a business owner out there that can't so down a, a pretty lengthy list of failures they've made in the process of starting their business. But they, instead of letting that first failure be what makes them stop, they learned from it. They applied what they learned to their business and they moved forward. And then they made another mistake at some point. Same thing. And they moved forward. Eventually, you know, hopefully if you're running a successful business in the end, and guess what? You're still going to make mistakes. So it's just a part of life and we can't avoid it. So allowing it to get in your, in your way for your own personal progression is... Yeah, it, it, it's a, hopefully more and more people will, you know, maybe if they're listening to this, we'll take something from that and maybe do something that's been fearful for themselves, you know? That that would be wonderful, Joe, and, and it's their choice. So it's yeah. a, each individual's choice. Joe, I, I have so enjoyed getting to speak with you and be inspired by you and, and he, learn from your your story. What is a way that people could connect and engage in conversation with you. Yeah, well, Teton Adapted is a great way to, to reach out. So um, you can go to tetonadaptedsports.com and you'll find plenty of information if you can get a hold of us there. If you want to get a hold of me directly, my email is joe at tetonadaptedsports.com. Pretty easy to remember, but it's joe at tetonadaptedsports.com. That's a great way. I'm happy to connect with anybody and everybody that reaches out. I, I love connecting with people and learning about other people's lives and figuring out ways that we can all work together to improve our communities. So, you know, and we're also, we're a 501c3 nonprofit, just trying to do some good work to bring more inclusion to the world and into our little valley of, of Jackson and the surrounding areas. So obviously anybody out there that's able to throw us any support, whether that be your time, your expertise, um, a donation, so many, there's so many ways you can help a nonprofit like ours to help us grow. So please reach out in any way and let's start conversations and let's start building more partnerships. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of working together. I don't, I don't believe in competition, especially in the nonprofit world. We're all trying to do something to better something in some way. So the more we're working together and the more we're partnering on things and collaborating on ideas, the more progression we see in our community. So yeah, whatever it might be, or as, as odd as it might sound or whatever, please reach out, like let's get a conversation going.
Well said, Joe. Thank you. Thanks again. And wish you all the best and keep growing Teton Adaptive. And for people to know, your Teton Adaptive Sports is rebranding to Teton Adaptive. So that's why initially we talked about Teton Adaptive, but even though the website is still Teton Adaptive Sports. Yeah, we still got a few few kinks to work out in the the rebranding side of things. So the sports is still attached to it. And um, but yeah, it's all the same. So if you find that one, it's you're in the right place. Okay. But thank you so much for having me on and give me a, a platform and the space to be able to chat with you and be open and and yeah, I, I hope I hope the community can take something from this and, and run with it. I, I hope so too, Joe. And and that's why I have this podcast is because it gets me talking to people that are outside of who I normally see every day. And I get to hear more of the people who I don't know about that are making an impact in this community, but not just here, this local community, but, but how they make an impact in the rest of the world. And that's something that you're certainly doing. And I appreciate it. Thanks. You got it. Take care, Joe. Have a good day. You do the same. Appreciate everything. You're welcome. Right. To learn more about Joe Stone and Teton Adaptive, visit the JacksonHoleConnection.com episode number 199. Thank you, everybody, who helps keep this podcast going. Get out there and share it. Send me a Facebook, Instagram message. I love hearing from you people. And I do love hearing from people when I'm talking and walking around town and getting to see folks of how you enjoyed an episode. Thank you to my wife, Laura, who always supports me and my boys, Lewis and William. Lewis is away at summer camp. Can't wait to see him. It's been almost 14 days since I've seen the little guy. So happy for him to be away at camp. William's enjoying his time with just Laura and I. And of course, Michael Morey. Folks, if you are looking to start a podcast, get in touch with Michael Morey. He has been with me since episode one. And this is episode 199. So you know he knows what's going on. Thank you, everybody. I look forward to seeing you back right here for the next episode of The Jackson Hole Connection.